one of the highest points of Ibiza, um, very, very close to Satalaya. And I'm really glad uh, for this very special episode of the Reset Rebel podcast because we are going to be talking about a rather huge and very tragic event that took place um, up here on this very mountain or very close by. Um, and I'm joined by the wonderful Simon Reed from Walking Ibiza who very interestingly informed me about um, this particular event a, a long time ago on a walk that we were taking and had absolutely no idea that it even occurred um, back then. So it was great to hear all of the details and very interesting and obviously very sad. Um, so Simon, thank you so much for coming up to join us here um, on one of the largest and highest points of the island. Yes, and hi Joe. Yes, I'm very pleased, very glad to be here and to be talking to you about this. So where exactly are we going to be taking a little stroll shortly? In fact, we may as well start walking and, and talking, shall we? Yes, well, we're, we're on the south side of uh, a little tiny sierra, a little mountain range called Ses Roxalts, which is where the plane actually, uh, actually crashed on the other side of the, of the actual mountain itself. And when was that? And of course, that, that was on the seventh of seventh uh, of January, nineteen seventy-two, the day after the Day of the Kings. So it was a, all the people coming back to the island to uh, start their work again. So there were families on board the plane and uh, workers uh, just coming back to uh, carry on with their lives after the festivities. And how many people were on board the plane? Well, there were ninety-eight passengers and six crew. And it was a very, very different time of year than it is on this beautiful July afternoon when we've decided to meet up here. There's obviously not a cloud in the sky, it's, it's beautiful, the big blue of Ibiza, there's nothing, um, you know, it's hardly even a sniff of wind in fact because uh, I can imagine it's very, very different to how it was on the 7th of January. Yes, and some of the reports say that there was fog around. Um, I've read other reports which said that it was quite clear but with some cloud around. Um, so exactly what the conditions were at the point of impact... Some of the stories say that the the, the mountain was shrouded in in uh, in cloud and fog, but um, I have a feeling that uh, that it wasn't quite quite like that. There was perhaps a little bit of uh, elaboration there. Maybe they wanted to apportion blame. I don't know. I really don't know. But um, but the official report that I read from the air crash investigators they they, they said it was Despejado, which is a clear sky. Interesting. I guess we'll probably never get to the bottom of that now 50 years on almost from that exact day and it's kind of you know that kind of information I guess isn't really at anybody's fingertips anymore I mean did they have black boxes back then what do we really know about actually um you know the kind of circumstances because I read something about this guy talking about a football match or saying that he was like up for having a beer because they'd almost they were almost ready to land I mean what's the what, what have you heard about that exact situation well there were black boxes but they were very rudimentary in those days um, they didn't have all the details that uh, the modern ones have so these are black boxes would have been recording things like altitude direction but they certainly didn't have the details as is the undercarriage down are the what position the, are the flaps in particularly because uh, I did read an article that said they the, uh, the accident was so severe and so bad that they couldn't tell whether the wheels were actually up or down and what position the flaps were in. Mm. I mean, 
you know, the reason I wanted to get you up here is not obviously just because of uh, the things that you've read and, you know, obviously you're very well read about all the wonderful guided walks that you do do. And I love the wealth and plethora of information that you always have to offer uh, the guests on your walks. Um, and it's one of the, the highlights, really, I think, of taking a walk with Walking Ibiza, the wonderful fact that uh, one gets to uh, receive. But I feel like, you know, well, you told me that you'd obviously, um, what caught my attention was you knew somebody who'd actually been the man who was one of the first people on the scene, which must have been incredibly traumatic. But who was this person that you got to know? Yes, he was an English guy who um, who had Spanish nationality, which was a sort of a rare thing back in those days. Um, we lived here as residents, but not many of us took up Spanish nationality. He went by the name of Bosque, um, and very few of us actually knew his real name. He kept that quite a secret from everyone except his incredibly close friends. Um, he sounds very mysterious. I know, this man. I know. He was a lovely man, actually. I knew him quite well. He he ran a um, a speedboat, uh, a Glastron concessionaire. If anybody remembers the old Glastron boats, they were very big at the time in the seventies. And so, what he used to do was sell these boats and, and maintain them. And so, he had a four by four. And back in those days, not many people did. He had this Land Rover. And nowadays, it's quite difficult to uh, to think back to those times when. There were very few people on the island and all the cars we had were very basic little tiny Seats and, uh, and Renaults and Citroëns. But he had this 4x4 so he was able to come up here and actually um, forge his way up to the crash site because it was uh, it's a remote spot. So what else? I mean we've got some cyclists who've just managed to brave it up here coming, uh, coming through now. But it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy road to get up here. We struggled in, uh, in the car that we've, we've kind of... Uh, flown up here in and it's um it is a tricky old road and I can just imagine you know getting up here in a four by four even then particularly with such a traumatizing event to you know to arrive at must have been quite a a hairy experience yes and also the mountain was on fire of course because the uh, the jet fuel had set fire to a lot of the trees and of and there was carnage all around the um the roads that led up to here were much smaller back then I mean now we can drive a car up here without a problem but a lot of the roads have grown over the years, these little caminos, as we, as we lovingly call them. Um, but in those days, they were much narrower. Um, cars didn't go everywhere. People would go by motorcycle or the, by horseback or walking. And so this road has been widened. And, uh, and as you said earlier, we're, we're, we're in this car park now where people will come up here once a year to pay their respects to the, uh, to the monument and the chapel that uh, we're going to be visiting shortly. I mean, tell us a bit more about this Bosque chap. I mean, I'm, I'm actually intrigued. You know, what other details can you give us? So he had a boat company and he obviously had this 4 by 4 but what else? How old was he? How did you know him? He was a colourful character. He was one of the, um, one of the, the personalities of, of San Antonio, uh, which is where I grew up, of course. We all, everybody had a nickname in those days. We often didn't know them by their, by their surnames at all. You know, we had, oh, of course, it was before, it was before um, extradition between the UK, it was before the common market absorbed Spain and, uh, and the UK. And so a lot of criminals from the UK used to come over here to hide not too far from the UK. Their families could come and visit them. And so we had these nicknames. And um, once we found out what they had done, they were given a nickname, uh, Ron the Con. Bob the Rob. I mean, you can just, <laughs> you couldn't make it up. Um, and if people were doing other things, their profession, uh, there was Ron the car, for example. He was a mechanic. Uh, 
we had a bar called the Fisherman's, and uh, I was known as Simon Simon the Fish, <laughs> also because I used to do a lot of diving. So not because of all the drinking that you used no, to do. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, no, not not at all. No. So so he had this name of Bosque, and uh, which means forest in Spanish. Um, but we never even found out why he was called Bosque. You know, it was a, I don't know if it was a name that he gave himself or what. But he. Um, he was he was a he was a character. He 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 ran this incredibly successful uh, business in San Antonio, and he would he was very generous as well, uh, especially to the newcomers of the island. I can remember him taking us out in his speedboat one day, um, all free of charge, and took us from San Antonio all the way to Escubel's, passing by Esvedra. Of course, the first time I'd ever seen Esvedra in in person was actually by boat. I mean, how how wonderful is that if you know Esvedra? Uh, what a marvelous, uh, what a marvelous rock it is! So uh, this is the kind of person he was. He was a very giving person, and of course, I think that's one of the reasons why he was very keen to come up here and um, and help out with the with the with the rescue. Of course, nobody knew how bad it was. There was a lot of confusion in the first few hours of the of the crash a lot of people thought that it had crashed into the sea and so a lot of boats were sent from Formentera and San Antonio to see if they could rescue people from the sea but it wasn't that at all there was um, there was a guy who was working up here who actually told the Guardia Seville where the accident had occurred and they said no it's crashed into the sea such was the the confusion at the time, and of course, we nobody had telephones, nobody had uh, communication. Very few, I mean, hotels had telephones, but very few houses had a telephone. So, this guy ran from this point all the way to San Jose to inform the Guardia Seville that had been a crash and the mountain was on fire, and they just wouldn't believe him. Anyway, so Bosky, uh, having heard the explosion from San Antonio, I was told that you could have heard the. You, the explosion, the boom all over the island, um, and particularly from San Antonio. They, uh, they, they sent the boats out. He jumped in his, in his, uh, in his Land Rover and started to uh, find his way up here. Uh, and when he got here, of course, he was met with, uh, with, with an absolutely horrific scene. Um, there were some terrible, terrible details. Um, he, he, he tells of bodies in trees, um, of, of, of bodies which were stripped naked because of course when you fly through the wreckage and through trees themselves at that sort of speed clothes are taken completely off um, he said there were body parts uh, no, this is quite gruesome but he suffered from what we would now call PTSD definitely because he would say that he would he would wake up in a very bad way sometimes screaming um, recalling the horrors that he that he'd seen up here, and I think that must have been the same for a lot of the conscripts as well. These, because uh, in those days um, there was a military service, and so a lot of the conscripts were brought up to help with the recovery, and they must have been terribly traumatized as well. So uh, yeah, it must have been a very very bad few days. What what so what's a conscript? The conscripts are the uh, the kids. The, um, the kids when they reach around about eighteen or back in those days, when they reached about eighteen years old, they were conscripted into the army, and it was called doing the mili, la mili, the milita- militario, going into the militario, and and um, and uh, doing your 
doing your 18 months I think it was that you had to uh, you had to you had you had to do it these were the days of Franco of course um, of course a very successful dictator ruled Spain for those 40 years since the Civil War and every every boy had to uh, had to go and do this military service and not necessarily where they were born either they kept them moving around Spain in different different places. I suppose the ones that came to Ibiza thought they were really lucky. <laughs> they come from somewhere rural in, in uh, on the mainland. I bet they did until they were brought up here to sort Absolutely. that problem out because, to, to be fair, at 18 years of age, if you'd have witnessed the horrors that they would have done in the aftermath of that crash with the mountain on fire and all of the things you've just described that Bosque told you about, like... You're not going to recover from that, I think, probably any time soon. No, absolutely. I, I don't think, uh, I don't think um, they would have done, despite the fact that they were in the military. Uh, they probably hadn't seen any active service at all. Spain hadn't been at war with anybody at all. But, um, uh, yeah, it would, have, it would have been horrifying for them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's something that I would have... I would like to think, like, I'd like to think that I could have helped out in some way, but I... I I doubt it, I doubt it. It would just leave you scarred for life, wouldn't it? I mean, no different, obviously, to the kinds of ages that, you know, boys in the military were shipped off to war, you know, back in World War One and World War Two, and any other wars that we've had on this uh, wonderful planet that we are lucky enough to call home that, you know, obviously shouldn't be in such states of conflict, but obviously that has happened through history. So I guess in some ways you kind of feel like, well, maybe that was, you know, good training for them somehow I mean I haven't even seen a dead body in my lifetime ever not one so it's an interesting concept I think in some ways that you know what what age is sort of old enough to witness such uh, atrocity and I don't think that anybody's ever ready for it including your friend Bosque who you say experienced the the post-traumatic stress disorder which yeah I just feel like is obviously I'd be surprised if he didn't suffer some sort of um, extreme kind of mental issues in the aftermath of of seeing all of that and of course he came up here out of the goodness of his heart to to help out as a kind human but ultimately um i just cannot even begin to imagine uh finding body parts in trees and seeing that fire raging through what is now here in the middle of july a very very dry barren land really for ibiza and i'm surprised it didn't cause some maging bushfire yes it could have done because the uh, the fire prevention um apparatus that we have now the helicopters and the, 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 the seaplanes that we use and of course not to not to forget the um the uh the forestal um fire people that come out and do such a fantastic job of keeping our island uh, safe when we do have fires we didn't have any of that in those days when we did have forest fires uh we used to have to um, sort of beg and borrow uh seaplanes uh, fire bombing seaplanes from Palma had one and I remember Barcelona and Valencia had them but if they had their own fires we we just had to sit here and burn so uh we had some pretty big forest fires back then mm-hmm. most definitely I don't think this one really went anywhere else it uh, was pretty much contained on this on this uh, Sierra itself here mm-hmm. I've seen some terrible forest fires here it's just in the seven years that I've been here I mean I know that there was a lot 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 bigger one up in San Juan before I arrived on the scene but um yeah it's just terrifying what can go wrong can't it if just from one little cigarette butt like you know that someone drops on one of your walks in a place like this or you know the things that can be the consequence of of obviously much bigger traumatic and scary events like a, a plane crashing into the island yes yes absolutely and it was af- actually after that event of that big fire you mentioned is when uh, Ibiza decided that, that really this is the time we've got to start putting in place 
um, mechanisms to stop the fires because of course the best time to stop a fire is when it starts immediately mm -hmm. so now we have fire rangers up on the mountains in fact on Satalaya itself there's a fire ranger and we have a few towers around the island too they're all linked by radio and they can call up um, as soon as they see a wisp of smoke they can call up um, call up the uh, the bombers to come and put the fires out yeah. yeah it's so fascinating though you know the sort of advancement in technological times of uh, you know obviously if something like a plane were to crash up here and now to how it you know was back in 1972 like you, you're saying they don't have any phones or any kind of uh you know radars or the kinds of um you know incredible pieces of gps and um, tracking devices that we have now to sort of see where planes are and what you know what's really really happened in the black box advancement to find out what's actually happened because as you said you know this guy was sort of talking about having a beer and they were almost ready to land and you know the fact that really it, it looked like it was kind of like a done deal it was all kind of like um in hand this is where the story really starts the plane was coming in from valencia and he was cleared to land um coming in from the west of course every airport even though it's only got one runway has got actually got two runways you have the runway from one side and the runway from the other and they're and then they're, they're numbered differently. So he was going to come in and land on uh, from, a, from a westerly approach. So that's flying um, over the, uh, the beach of uh, Escodalar. So that would be, if you like, just passing Esvedra. So the people on the plane would have seen Vedra out there and they would have seen the, the, the beautiful mountains of Ibiza as they were coming in. But there was at one point it was said that he decided to change the approach and he wanted to come in from Ibiza town instead we've all those of us living here we've all seen the planes flying over Ibiza town on that approach and that's the one that he requested there was only a couple of knots difference in wind it had changed slightly the original flight plan was to come in from the west but then he changed it and requested coming in from the other side on a on a whim perhaps we don't know there was not really enough the change in wind to say that you can't land from this direction. Now, normally what you would do is you would scoot out to the south of the island, which is what they do now, and uh, make a left-hand uh, turn and come in from that side. But he decided not to. He decided to overfly the island. And he was descending, of course. He, 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 it is said that well, the, the recordings say that uh, state that he he requested a descent from I think it was five thousand meters. So he started to descend and requested to come in from the other side. But he came over the island, descending as he went instead of taking the safe route out to sea, where there's no mountains. Um, so. The story then goes, and the recordings say that he started talking to the air traffic controllers about football. Now, a lot of a lot of the uh, the accounts mention this talking about football. So there's a lot going on in the cockpit when you're coming into land. You're configuring the plane for landing. Flaps have got to be out. You've got to be throttling back. You've got to be putting the say flaps undercarriage in in preparation. You've got to be make, maybe making announcements. The the the, the the uh, cabin crew are doing their thing as well so you're preparing the plane for a landing but he was talking about football and then the last few um the last few words uh that were uttered were ponme una cerveza ya estamos which is get a beer on 
we're 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 there already. We're 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 about to land, and of course that was the last thing that was heard. And then after that, the big boom, and uh, the story over the next few hours came out that uh, the plane had struck had struck the island. They knew pretty much pretty pretty soon at the airport, I think, because of course they were expecting it to just curve over and come on in and it never did of course so very was, tragic i mean was there any way of testing the pilot to see if he'd actually had a drink i mean that would be your first question really if he's talking about having a beer upon landing mm. maybe that's quite standard chit chat but ultimately my question would be was was he was he sober well i never heard of any evidence that he was intoxicated at all i think and this is just my personal opinion that the accident was most likely caused by distraction that his mind was not where it should have been and that was flying the plane so he was distracted he 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 lost the picture of exactly where he was in the sky he was too low and it was a the official report is controlled crash into terrain so the plane had nothing wrong with it at all there was absolutely no problems with the plane the of course some people were saying it was clear uh, the official report said despejado, clear skies, and um, until the last moment. Now it's interesting to note that the um, that the I did read that the plane was seven degrees up, which is quite of a sort of a normal attitude for coming in to land. Of course, that means the nose would have been up, so your vision would have been a bit obstructed by having the nose of the aircraft tilted slightly up. Quite normal for coming into land. Um, different planes come in at different angles, of course. But then there is some evidence to su- suggest also that at the last second, the mountain was seen and the plane was put into a steep climb, but it was still 90 metres too low to, uh, to clear Cesrox Alts. And how high is Cesrox Alts? It's around about the 400 metre mark, so it's still quite low. But it, such was the impact that a lot of the debris uh, was, if you like, for want of a better word, um, ski jumped, uh, ramped onto this side of the of the of the of the mountain. So half of the tail section fell down on the other side, and the some a lot of the the, the, the bodies and the wreckage came on this side, the way where we are now on this on the south side of Cesar Rock Salts. Just quite shocking, quite shocking to even picture what was going on on that plane at the time. I mean, hopefully people didn't have too much terror in the in the moments before they couldn't see the fact that this mountain was approaching out of the the side of the windows to kind of you know know that impending doom was uh, imminent you'd kind of you know obviously you hear about these terrorist flights or whatever where people start to understand that their their card is marked but i guess perhaps in this instance that was that was not so much the case it was just an instantaneous boom as you as you call it yes indeed because you obviously in an, in an aircraft you can't see perfectly forward um, so they may not have seen anything at all. They may have thought that they were a bit low, uh, especially if they'd made the, the flight a few times before. Or maybe they'd be wondering why they were flying over Ibiza. I don't think they could have seen much about, uh, because Cesrox Alt is a Sierra, and they were going perpendicular to it, so they may not have seen much about it, uh, of what they were going to um, strike. Uh, an interesting thing was a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who... Uh, who works for uh, Eurowings, and she worked for German Wings back before they changed the name. And uh, those of you may remember that there was a young uh, co-pilot who crashed the plane into a mountain on purpose. And those people did actually 
the last minute they were screaming because they knew the plane was going to crash so they saw the mountains and of course the pilot was trying to batter his way into the cockpit to get back control of the plane but I brought her up here because she um, she was still suffering I mean, she knew these people that were on board the plane she knew the air crew um, and I, I said to her I've mentioned the air crash and she said where did it happen and I told her and I said would you like to go and see it and so um, I brought her up here and it was an incredibly moving moment for her as, uh, as it is with everybody who I bring up here because when you, you just sit here and all you can li- hear is the, the wind in the, in the pine trees uh, the strange thing is is that we can hear a few birds making noise around here but some people say to me when they get up there there's no bird sound up here at all and that's a really moving for somebody to realize that and say what this is a very special place and that's how I feel whenever I come here I don't feel I feel incredibly privileged that I've that I can come and visit this place but I have an an amazing calmness about me when I come to uh, when I come to visit which is just a few times a year sometimes on my own sometimes with people but um, as you'll see later on when we go up there um, you'll see what a calming place well I hope you will yeah you'll see what a calming place it is and it's a place definitely for reflection um, as you will see parts of the plane in the uh, few years ago before more and more people made their way up here there were far more parts of the plane there were even clothes and shoes still up here even bones Um, and sometimes when bones are found they're placed on the altar and they get collected up by I don't know who I hope it's somebody who comes up here and cleans up and takes them somewhere special but of course nowadays we know people like to take souvenirs so as gruesome as that may sound um, I've no proof of that but parts definitely go missing I've seen bones on the altar most definitely yeah God I actually don't even really know if I'm sure if I want to go up there but I guess we should start to take a stroll in that general direction and um, yeah and just uh, sort of maybe describe it to the viewers about where the plane actually went down are you are you ready to take a little walk uh, up there absolutely let's go see if we can leave the car We're park the country car gravel park. yeah going leaving the car park and there's a, a little tiny park which um leads its way up to uh, the altar which was built within about six months of the uh of the crash happening so i'm used to going up as you said to satellite to where those two sort of um great big aerial uh, markers are over there i've been up there many many times and i actually thought that that's where the plane went down i think a lot of people believe that it crashed into satellite that being one of the highest points or the highest point on the island so um yeah this is a completely different place to where i thought you were going to bring me and you can kind of hike up here really from san jose can't you if you're uh, feeling adventurous yes absolutely you can there's a there's a very lovely walk and um uh, you can just carry on over the mountain and make your way up here we do we do quite a few walks up here ourselves uh, with the, with a company with uh, walking Ibiza, the company I work for. We um, we do bring people here. I, I give people the option whether they want to come and see the uh, the um, the plane crash site or not. Sometimes people just say no, and I can understand that. Yeah, I just think it's so funny what you said about the birds not tweeting because. You know, normally July time, not only have you got the birds tweeting, you've also got the cicadas going absolutely crazy in the pines. It's one of the 
sounds of the summer for me to hear um, that sort of orchestra of cicadas. And it kind of reminds me of the sounds I used to hear as a child in the south of France. But there's none of that going on at all, which is um, quite quite unusual. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's uh, it's always it's always very nice to to hear people say, "Oh, wow, there's no bird song here," um, when they notice that, because it means that they really are starting to feel the the, the very unique um, atmosphere of this place. Yeah, it does feel very 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 quiet oh there's one bird it's the only bird i've seen or heard yet silent flapping of the wings so then we'll stop recording and just until we arrive there because it's quite hilly i'm feeling a little bit breathless what about you oh <laughs> yeah well it's a it's a nice gradual climb um but just before... you're a bit fitter than i am because you've just done the round the island walk i'm a mere mortal over here yes but well, we, we we do remain quite fit in our in our job so what's this little uh, plateau you brought us to? Well, this is, this is a little, uh, little place. There's many of these structures around the island, and this is a Forn de Cals, and um, it's a lime kiln. So Ibiza's made up um, mostly of limestone, and this is where they will cook the lime up to, uh, to turn it, well, the limestone, to turn it into quicklime, which is a great building uh, product, of course, but... Uh, they're very important that you mix it with after you've processed it with the heat you can mix it with sand and water and you get a, a rudimentary cement which a lot of the, of the the old houses are made of of course but um, also just mixed with water it becomes that brilliant white paint that we used to use on all the houses here now we use plastic paint but in the old days we used calce and it was this uh, white wash this lime wash that all the houses were painted with, which gave such a brilliant, uh, brilliant um, brightness to all the, all, the, all the houses. While we're on the topic, Simon, I've got a question for you. Over by the airport, there's a mountain that's got half of it missing, and it's like they're chopping away half of it, where you land on the island. You would think they wouldn't really want to be doing that right where all the wonderful tourists who are here to spend lots of money can sort of um, see what's going on. Please tell me what is happening on that mountain. Well, that, that's a quarry. Um, there'll be stone and sand will be taken from that mountain. And that one has been there even from even when, when I first came over here in 1972. That was, that was a, a working quarry. There was one in San Antonio as well, which is now disused. But also, uh, as you drive around Ibiza, you will see other mountains that have been chopped away and they've got big chunks missing out of them. And that's exactly what they are. It's for the building trade. So it's sand and rocks. Sand and, and they, they process it into gravel. So you can get local sand, local gravel, and all grades of gravel as well, yeah. I don't know what's worse, to sort of bring it in from elsewhere and have the eco footprint that we uh, create by bringing and importing things here, or whether it's more sad to sort of start chopping up and, you know, carving out chunks of the island, because um, obviously the ecosystem that relies upon that uh, part of the island to sort of... Um, to survive yes absolutely i mean we are we are doing a lot to the island of course uh near rocalisa as well which is where all the rubbish gets dumped a whole valley has been filled in and uh, they're looking around for another valley to fill so yes when it comes to uh when it comes to those sort of issues yeah chopping away at mountains making those sort of disappear over the years over the decades and valleys getting filled in which uh yeah we're making a, an impact for sure and that's because you say, obviously, in 1972, when this plane crashed up, and there was 40,000 people here that we knew about, and now 
What's the population these days? Well, officially, there's just under 150,000. These are the people who go to the town hall and they register. But of course, there's many more than that. Um, they work this out, they sort of extrapolate the data because of how much fuel gets used on the island, how much food gets eaten, how many cars there are here. Um, so once you remove the tourists, the numbers of which you know, and you do some calculations, you can work out that um, unofficially we have well, twice that. We've got about 300,000 people living here all the time now. And in the summertime, what does that rise to? I mean, how many visitors are there? Because I heard a figure bandied around the other day that there's possibly something like two to five million people coming to visit this island in the summer. Yeah, I've heard figures like that as well. Yeah, so when, 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 it's always interesting to see the figures at the end of the year to see how many have come in by plane, how many have come in by, by boat. But yes, yes, we get a lot of visitors on this island. A little tiny Ibiza and uh, look how it's grown over the years. But look at the destruction. The yeah. tale of mass destruction is that, my point here. Really, is yeah, like absolutely. you know, we can all obviously benefit from that in our businesses and and take a nice little chunk of the pie home. But ultimately, it is causing utter utter chaos for the ecosystems that you know are here. And the Abitha Preservation Fund is uh, you know one of the previous uh, podcast guests that we've had on this show, and it feels like you know, talking about covering in entire valleys and now, you know, chopping up the island and making more building materials. You know, we don't need to keep building more houses, really, if there wasn't all these tourists coming. It's not like the locals need them. That's my my point, I suppose. And I think the more air traffic that's coming here, yes, we've got the technological devices to deal with it, but, you know, it's causing, it's causing trouble for the island. Yes, it is in many different ways. In many different ways as well, because... Um, when you think about just the water situation on the island, now we've been we've just uh, come out of a sort of a 20-year drought, if you like. The water tables have got lower and lower. A friend of mine, he digs wells. Uh, we're not really supposed to dig wells or boreholes much these days. There's sort of a moratorium on them. But what he does is he makes them deeper because the, the water table is dropping so much that um, that there's no water in them. So he goes around making people's wells deeper, making their boreholes deeper. So that's a problem. Of course, a few years ago, we had a lot of rain over the winter and that pushed up the, uh, the water table. They said we were down to 20%. And those massive rains that we had, um, more than we'd had in 20 years, pushed it up to about 80%. Between 60 and 80%. They say that it's dropping rapidly again. When it comes to water, of course, water is life. We've got a few desalination plants on the island, but of course they have their own impact because, of course, you put the salt back into the sea and you have these uh, little waste areas of where the, the, this, this extra salt is being dumped into the sea where the marine organisms can't live. So that's a real big shame. So where's the water going? The hotels are doing their best. Back in the old days, your sheets were washed every single day every day in the hotels nowadays you don't get such, such such a changeover so they're doing their best but a lot of villas on the island now they're having lovely luxury gardens with tropical plants not the subtropical plants that are that can survive without without much irrigation here but they want the colorful plants and so they'll have a well dug and they'll be pumping 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 tons of water all the time and the swimming pools of course maintenance of swimming pools takes a lot of water too and so there's a big demand on water on the island. Um, so that's just one, one part of it. Yeah. Sewage problem is another. You know, we've just had a big construction in Ibiza town to cope uh, a little bit more with the sewage. If you think it's bad now in some parts of the island, 
Calaferida and uh, uh, Talamanco in question. Back in the 70s, it was utterly appalling. Uh, a lot of the, um, uh, well, just outside San Antonio, the, the sewage was pumped straight into the sea and you couldn't um, see through the water. It was muddy. The water was muddy with, with yeah, sewage. It was really, really terrible. Mm-hmm. Things are getting better. We, uh, we've got nice clean waters in many, many parts of the island now. Uh, much better than it was in in the old days the posidonia this neptune grass that we're blessed with that's a very good indicator of uh, whether the water is pure or not uh, we were losing these meadows of posidonia and, and the posidonia is such an important thing to the island the uh, the little fish the fry get born and they hide amongst the the posidonia until they're big enough to fend for themselves so they don't get eaten by the bigger fish and so of course if you lose the posidonia you're losing uh, the fish stocks as well because the little fish get eaten before they can grow big. So uh, now there's a big movement to protect the Posidonia. Well, it is protected, very much so. Mm. Uh, but we still have the mega yachts dropping their anchors straight in the meadows of Posidonia, and as the wind turns, their anchor chains chew up great chunks of it. They, uh, there are fines, but when you see that you can be paying 20,000 euros to stay in a mega yacht in Ibiza town and the fine drop in the ocean quite literally yeah and 4,000 euros for a fine if you're caught if you're caught by putting your anchor down on Posidonia you know so this is where we we do have a lot of uh, yachts not going into Ibiza town Uh, even the millionaires and the billionaires I think they keep an eye on the wallet (laughs) well it's good to know and also there's obviously the uh, Posidonia maps now which the uh, Ibiza Preservation Fund has put together for that very purpose so that people don't drop their anchor in places that they shouldn't we should really continue up this uh, this marvellous hill Uh, now we've had a little look at this limestone oven and I'm going to pause the recording here I think until we get back up to the top of the hill uh, so that we can focus on uh, breathing properly. I know, I've known for some time now that people are searching this hill with metal detectors, um, scouring the hill trying to find wreckage. Um, I, by chance, found um, a little piece of the compressor blade from one of the engines, a little chunk the size of your thumb. It was titanium, so and I knew the shape of it, I knew it was a compressor blade. And not being a person who takes souvenirs, I hid it. And this rock you see right here is where I hid it. And I put it underneath this rock. And as you can see, it's gone. Oh my God. Now who's gonna find it? Who's gonna find that without a metal detector? No one's gonna move this pile of rocks trying to find, I mean, this is a rock that's been here for decades, but somebody obviously went over it and the, the, the blade I just placed under here. That's quite frightening that people would come and just take a little piece of uh, piece of history away with them. And also, not only that, but if on YouTube you can see that there are videos of people who have come up here at night time to see if there are any ghosts. They put out recorders and, and detectors for um, heat detectors and see if there's any, any movement or activity. And also there's that, um, there was a, a craze some years ago when people used to put recorder, tape recorders out and just press record and just leave them to see if they could pick up any strange sounds of uh, ghosts, I suppose is what, it, what you, what you uh, could call them. Um, so yes, there's, there's always people up here investigating. And uh, even some Spanish TV programs, they've come up here and done the same things, these paranormal-type programs. Mm. 
Mm. That's all a bit, all a bit disrespectful, really. Somehow it feels a little bit wrong. I mean, if my one of my family members was uh, involved in that crash, you know, a parent um, or, or a loved one, I really wouldn't feel very comfortable about seeing a TV programme on Spanish TV about whether there's ghosts living on this mountain. I think people should be left to, to rest in peace, really. Yes, absolutely, and 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 that sort of brings me on to um, brings me on to the feeling after the accident, um, because there was a lot of it was a, an Iberia plane. It was a subsidiary of Iberia that uh, that ran this um, caravel, this French-made caravel that crashed. Um, it there were there was an American on board, and there was a German on board. You'll see their names when we get up to the uh, up to the chapel. And everyone was paid compensation. Now, the word was that everybody, all the Spanish and Ibithencans, got 400,000, more or less, 400,000 pesetas. Now, the peseta, of course, uh, that's long gone now. And we're not, um, we're not using that anymore. What's that approximately in euros? It would work out around about these days about £2,000, more, more or less. It was about £5,000 to a million. So, yeah, around about 2000 So that was, um, that was a sort of okay for the time. You could, you could buy an apartment or even a, maybe even a, a couple of apartments uh, for that kind of money back, though, back then in the 70s, small apartments in town. But when it came to the American and the German, they were paid far, far more, which has left a really bad taste and anger on this island because they knew that the American would have a big lawsuit going on, the German also, and so they paid the German a lot more. I think it was in the region of, I could be wrong, but I think it was a region of 2 million pesetas, so 10,000 pounds, roughly euros, the way the pound is against the euro at the moment. Um, and the uh, American got three and a half million, and so considerably more, and, and quite a lot of money for the time. Um, but that, that, to this day, makes people very, very, as you can imagine, makes people very, very angry that oh, you know, the locals they, they can just get nothing, you know, just get a, a couple of, couple of, uh, a couple of thousand uh, euros, and instead of what the uh, the foreigners got. Mm. It's just utterly utterly disgusting i mean really i don't know if we really want to go into this but to be fair it, it doesn't surprise me when you actually dig a little deeper and find out what the local people are really paid here to work here the people that are born and and bred here and the minimum wage here is like absolutely peanuts well of course and this is the problem with ibiza right now is that we have this this incredible gulf between the workers and of course we, i mean we've become such an international island now it's a jet setters island and we have people, billionaires, coming here. We have a lot of houses which are empty a lot of the year. Um, these mega villas and, 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 and beautiful, beautiful houses. But and that, and that leaves a little bit of bad taste in people's mouths when they are finding it very hard to afford to uh, to rent an apartment or, or even get onto the property ladder, let's say, to buy an apartment or a house would be out of most people's... Um, uh, grasp i mean so as you know yourself how expensive properties have become over here compared with the rest of spain when i go to the mainland or even over in menorca just a few a uh, few months a couple of months ago 
to see the price difference in the uh, in the islands uh, and of course with the mainland even even more so because properties are really quite uh, quite reasonable there compared to Ibiza everyone wants to come and live here yeah mm. But so the people on this plane were probably Ebithenko local born and bred. You know, you say it was coming in from Madrid or Valencia, and it was well, it was basically full of people that actually live here. Well, that's right. Well, it, the, the plane actually started in Madrid and flew to Valencia, and then it went on to Ibiza. Um, I think it was about eighty people got off the plane from that 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 part of the leg so they got off the plane so they were going from madrid to valencia and then it was filled with people from valencia or people who had holidayed in valencia and they were coming back to the island so yes lots of ibithencans and uh, and of course uh, spanish people as well workers the residents of the island yeah most definitely it was just the two foreigners that were that were on board the american and the german hmm. just shocking it just doesn't surprise me though that um that was the case in terms of the payouts but you know that would definitely leave a very 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 bad taste in my mouth not only the grief and the the sadness and the anger and the outrage but yeah that would be the cherry on top of a a very unsavory cake indeed well that's right and especially since depending on which report you read there did seem to be mm, a kind of a cover-up going on there was a there was oh there were some stories i mean this there was one story that i heard and this isn't this isn't actually written down anywhere i've never actually read it except that uh, the only bit i've read is that they never found the altimeter now with an altimeter they as you ray, go up in altitude they react and of course when you come back down they react if the plane uh, is stopped uh, at a particular point whether it let's say lands high up on some airports are very high or it lands very low where you where the plane stops is where the altimeter stops so it doesn't reset to zero when you turn the engines off i mean the modern day ones of course they're all electronic but in those days they were very very physical mechanical things and so if you recovered the altimeter the pointer would be telling you how high the plane was at that time of course you have to adjust an altimeter for local conditions because it works on barometric pressure so they never found the altimeter if they had found the altimeter they would have known if the plane was flying too low or that the altimeter had been set incorrectly for the height of the mountains that they were going to fly over one would say pilot error because if he'd set it wrong or had he not been looking at it when the plane crashed pilot error so that's a very serious thing to consider but they said that they found the um some of the instruments of the plane but the altimeter was never recovered and you can read into that whatever you like this place was scoured quite a lot by the military and by the officials from the uh from the air traffic investigators and so a lot of people were up here for quite some time afterwards during the cleanup but they never found the altimeter which always seems a little bit just a bit suspicious to me without wanting to cast any accusations it all seems a little bit weird that other instruments were found in the cockpit but the altimeter wasn't mm. so something to think about well on that note i think we should take a little stroll up to uh the altar and um yeah have a little uh, have a little catch up at the top of the hill Whew, so we just reached the very tip um, 
of the path leading up here and we're just um, approaching what is the altar which um, I've actually never seen before I didn't know that this existed and it's um, it's got some beautiful flowers on it and uh, obviously two very long and rather large plaques which I'm assuming has all the names on them that's right the names are all there of everybody that uh, that perished in this uh, awful accident <clears throat> they um, the place where we're standing now is all part of the debris field it's just behind the altar is the the actual top the ridge if you like of Cesrox Alps this lovely Sierra which we're on and it was just on the other side of that 90 meters down is where the plane struck and so this whole area here spreading out you can see the walls are going that way and this way spreading out in a V and this is where the debris was catapulted when the crash occurred such was the crash the, so violent was the crash that um, even though it crashed on the other side the debris was found and bodies of course um, over an area of six square kilometers so that just goes to show how all the well, half of the plane ramped up in one of the engines which have, in the caravel is at the back of the plane one of the engines was found over here on this side so very very violent a very very violent event without any shadow of a doubt as we start to walk up towards the uh, this 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 lovely little monument here um you'll start to see some of the some of the parts from the plane some of the the uh the wreckage what in the altar or yes all around oh, wow. um, even probably on the altar as well sometimes it's left on the altar yeah. and then sometimes people come along and they it all goes clear but people are, uh, I think people are going around finding stuff and putting it on the altar and then somebody comes and takes the lot and takes it away somewhere mm. but, I've, but it definitely disappears but I don't know who does it mm. Mm. could be the families you just don't know do you but yeah. there's some nice well, there's a beautiful bouquet uh, off to the right of the altar in the bushes over there with some blue ribbons on it as well um, obviously been placed there fairly recently should we wander yeah, yeah. take a little stroll but, towards it the flowers are always being replaced and candles are put here as well. So uh, there used to be a time just a few years ago before this place became really well known because of, of course... Oh my God, YouTube. you are not wrong. There's literally... Yeah. Oh, I did not expect to see that at all. Uh -huh. There's lots of little bits of metal. Yeah. Lots and lots all yeah. over the steps of kind of wires and scraps and a rusty old sort of tin box and oh my god this is actually really quite frightening well these are all oh my I... god and there's a shoe yes oh my yes yes and clothes towels piece of a towel these are these are um hydraulic pipes that would have taken all the fluids to the various parts of the plane of course this is the outside skin of the plane you can see the rivets there of this twisted piece of metal there wasn't much bigger than this unfortunately it really was uh, this seems to be a bit of wiring loom from the plane here armored wiring loom cables in there you can see uh, insulation as well some sort of fiberglass in insulation you see I mean this has been fire damaged of course but I thought you maybe meant you'd find like one or two bits but this is like a pile of scrap that's like almost three or four hundred pieces I'm I'm, at, <laughs> I'm just actually in shock I I just didn't expect to see a child's shoe on the pile that's yeah. actually 
totally and utterly heartbreaking. It is, it is. And because, of course, we live on a very dry island, this, they're, they're, they're preserved. I mean, you can tell it's, it's, it's decades old, but you can see the rubber is still there. I mean, look at this, just a little child. It's tragic, absolutely tragic. No question at all. It's, um, uh, yeah, you can see insulation from the plane, you know, just a sound insulation or thermal insulation from the plane. And I think that's another trainer, that blue yeah. one there. There used to be a Completely lot more. Completely and utterly burnt yeah. and sort of twisted. Yeah, yes, melted. I mean, this, is, this has been fire damaged, as you can see. It's been just melted down to nothing, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite really, a moving place, isn't it? I just, I'm almost completely speechless, which isn't ideal for a podcast, but I just, um, I didn't expect this. I did not expect this at all. I think, I guess, until you're really kind of forced to face the reality and the physicality of the of the wreckage and shoes, I did not think that that would be the case this far down the line, almost 50 years on. Yeah, yeah, and some pieces are really quite identifiable here. Here are the compressor blades from the engine. They're bent, but these are the blades from the inside of the engine. This is how it's slotted on and fitted in. You know, you, when you look into an engine, you see all these blades in a circle, and this is, this is all part of it. Stainless pipes here. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, yeah. And this, this pile grows, it comes and goes. So there are people all the time scouring the hill, trying to find other, other parts... There's even a piece of glass here that's actually still. Oh no! I think that's well, probably actually, modern and something. That does not look. No, no, no it's I not. It's, it's actually a champagne flute, yeah. a plastic one. Maybe someone came up here to toast the anniversary of their maybe their loved ones and had yeah. a little glass of carver just to say goodbye or yeah to remember remember somebody. Absolutely, this uh, this actually could be one of the part of one of the portholes, as you can see. This could very well be one of the strengthening parts of, a, of one of the windows of the plane. Yeah. Wow. I just, yeah. Oh, here's, here's most definitely part of the... Uh, some cockpit glass, perhaps, or a window of the plane. Very thick plexiglass, as you can see there. So you say that you come up here sometimes and there's no, none of this left at all, so people clear it and take it all away? Yes, yeah. Yes, they do, yeah. Just on the other side of the wall, just here... A few years ago, there was a pile of clothes and shoes. There were so many there. And then they all vanished in one go. So somebody obviously came up and took them. You don't think, like, I don't know, the people that obviously were partially responsible for, for this crash, you know, whoever that might be, would come and just clear it all away, you know, the proof or the evidence of, of you know, the real devastation. Because I guess the, seeing this now almost makes you want to kind of, you know, get to the bottom of it again because it's... It's very emotive. It's very stirring. It's very, um, it's very, very, very sad indeed. Actually, mm. I'm really struggling to hold my emotions together. Looking at all those plaques and that big pile of rubble. It's, um, yeah. I just, I mean, you know, I guess in this lifetime, you think about how many flights are in the sky these days, and how many planes are taking off at landing every second and every, you know, breath that we breathe all around the world. I mean, you just don't really get that many crashes, really, considering how many planes are in the sky right now. No, that's right. They, 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 they say it is, it is the, the most, well, the safest form of transport that we, uh, that, we, uh, that we use. But of course, because of the numbers, if there is an accident, potentially a lot of people die at the same time. And it's, uh, I mean, a lot of us fly and it's all very close to us when it, uh, when it happens, particularly when it happens 
on our island or close by to where we live. Um, as I said, I missed this by just a few months before I came to live here, but um, everyone was talking about it when, when we came to live here. Oh, did you, ever, did you hear about the plane crash that uh, we had uh, earlier on this year, you know? So yeah, it was, uh, it was very, very big news. I think I remember hearing that it was the second, the second worst um, Spanish um, accident at the time. Yeah, I was, was reading a little clipping actually from uh, a newspaper which very strangely happened to be from where my parents are from which is um, the Windsor Star um, which I found it really quite odd to, to find the only clipping that I could find on Google when I did a little bit of research just before we wandered up here and it's from the Windsor Star from the day after the crash on January the 8th 1972 and it says pilot calls for beer then boom and Spanish airline crash kills 104 and it was saying it was the worst accident in the history of Spain's national airline and the second worst that had ever occurred in Spain so on July the 3rd mm. 1970 a chartered British Dan Air comet crash um, was near Barcelona with a loss of 112 so the official Spanish news agency um, Cifra reported that the last radio contact with the ill-fated plane was made at 12.15pm, like you said, and when the pilot reported his position over the small island of Conalera, 12 miles from Ibiza Airport, and asked for permission to descend to 5,500 feet, he'd said, get me a beer ready, we are here. Mm. Exactly, as you said, that those were the last words that were ever uttered, and the control tower gave the 37-year-old um, pilot a veteran of 7,000 flying hours and a father of six permission to descend so shortly after that the plane um, mostly carrying workers as you explained before from Valencia returning with their families from a Christmas New Year holiday spent with relatives to their jobs in Ibiza crashed into the 1,515 foot mountain so yeah it's actually just making me feel quite choked I think just to, to see it, this because yeah. as I said until a few weeks back on your walk I, I had no idea that this had even um that this had even happened and to see all these flowers here and to see the actual physical rubble and parts of the closing it's just not it's not what I expected I don't know what I expected I just expected a little monument really and and for it all to be very perhaps untended to I guess maybe 50 years down the line you think most people don't have relatives that were really known still in that crash but there must be lots of people here that had parents or loved ones or grandmothers or grandparents there yes absolutely um children were left without uh without parents and it was uh it was a big, a big shock, a big shock to the island. Of course, uh, I think things were a lot cl more close knit in those days, much closer knit than than they are now. There were far less foreigners here, for one thing. When you came to this island back in those days as a foreigner, you really got yourself in with the locals, very, very much so, uh, more so than you do nowadays. Um, I find that uh, I meet up with uh, English people here these days, and they, they, they. Um, they sort of keep themselves to themselves and don't really get involved with with the locals. They're missing out on a great thing, of course, because yeah, it's great to get 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 uh, get to know the locals. They've got some great um, great things to show you and places to show you, especially in in our in our business with the, with the walking. Because many of the walks I've I've been shown by by friends, um, little hiding little little places that are secretly hidden away somewhere, and they go, "Oh, have you tried to?" Uh, go and have a little look at that bay or that little place around the side there and and then you investigate it and go and find it yourself but it's very very nice to get involved with uh, 
get involved with the locals most 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 sure but yeah back to the back to the subject it was um the fact that the that the island was so close knit is what, what it touched everybody when this with if we go and have a look at the names up here let's climb up the steps and go a little bit deeper into the altar what does that mean? La vida no termina, se transforma. So it just says that the, the, the life doesn't life doesn't end, but it but it transforms. And uh, and then this one on here says, "I am the resurrection and life." And uh, these four plaques here are all the people that that, that perished. And here, underneath the uh, the crucifix, um, it said, "Here were lost in the uh, in the accident of the seventh of uh, January, nineteen seventy-two." And as we start looking, looking down, of course, there are all these Spanish names, and you can see that they're put in, they're put together in, in pairs. In sometimes you can see there's José Luis and Magdalena, with a little space in between. Maybe they were together, maybe they were a, a, a couple. Who knows? Um, but we look down a bit further, and then we can get down. Let's just see where they are. Jeffrey David de Sac, he was the um, the American. And uh, you've got the German guy here, Dieter Fricker, um, and all the rest, are, all are, the rest are, are, Spanish. are Spanish names. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, at that time of the year, there wouldn't have been too many foreigners uh, flying in and out, perhaps, um, especially from the mainland. They would have been mostly flying from uh, after the, summer, uh, the Christmas holidays coming in from, from Europe, uh, the countries of Europe. But I'm just, ha- just having a little look to see of these other, other names, to see if there's any... Ibethenka names Planelis, of course, here. See, that's a, that's a, a good Ibethenka name there. Let's have a look, a little, having a little look down here. A lot of Spanish names, of course. Um, looking, I'm just looking for some, Ruiz. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, um, a name from the mainland, definitely. Uh, just having a little look further down. Yeah, Solera, Jurado, Martinez, Juan, Lopez. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, they're all here, all these I people my, that haven't been forgotten. My favourite part is um, that I'm looking down at our feet right here and I see a, a big fat cigar on a, on, a, um, on a little saucer for a coffee cup or something. And it's, it's difficult to know whether that is a cigar that maybe somebody came and smoked um, in celebration of one of these lives, or whether perhaps it was a cigar that was found as part of the debris. Maybe somebody was actually smoking that on board when the plane went down. You just don't know, because back then, of course, you could actually smoke on aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thank goodness we don't have that these days. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I used to smoke yeah. a Marlboro Light on my way to uh, my Greek holiday. And there's a bottle of um, there's a bottle of booze down there as well. What's that? that may I? if I ought to pick it up or not. What is that? Ujo? Aguardiente. Yeah, that's, um, that's fearsome stuff. Aguardiente. Fearsome yeah, stuff. Fearsome stuff. Let's not have a shot. Yeah, yeah very, very <laughs> tough stuff as well. Uh, on, the main, on Ibiza, of course, we, uh, we often have a little chupito given to us after a meal, and it's usually yerbas or one of the local liqueurs of the island. But on the mainland, they give you aguardiente, and sometimes it's um, made by the family themselves who own the restaurant, and it can be... Firewater. Absolutely. You won't be driving home. No, no, no. Very (laughs) strong stuff. One thing that's interesting is there's two urns here. Oh my God, I just noticed this. Now, now if these are, if there was a request for 
th these particular people here to be cremated and then put here in these urns. That's a rather strange thing at the time because, of course, it's a Roman Catholic country and it was even more so back then. And cremation wasn't a thing that was done, particularly not on this island. It's only been a, in the last few years that cremation is, that we've had a crematorium here. So um, this would have been, this is quite a, r a rare thing. Or, or maybe the part of the family, maybe they have since died and they've been put here where their parents, uncles, aunts died. Who knows? Because they all wanted to be together. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. I have a feeling that might be more likely because of the fact that back in those days there was no, nobody really got cremated. Everyone was buried, mm -hmm. well, buried in walls. You know, as you go into the, uh, the cemeteries here, and a lot of them are just walled in for a few years before they eventually get moved somewhere else. Mm. Why is that? Well, it's, um, it's one of those things. Uh, I've heard different, different stories of how, it, how it's done, but you get put into a wall for a while. If you keep on paying, you can stay in the wall forever. But um, you stay in there for so long, and if you don't or you can't afford to keep paying, then they'll take you up, off you and bury you somewhere. Um, it became such a problem um, in... I remember a story back around about, around about this time, in fact, that um, because it was customary in those days to get the, the body buried before sunset in those days, so it's still very, very fast these days, but back then it was before sunset. So if somebody died late afternoon, sometimes they, they found that they weren't actually dead, but they were just in a strange state um, that they couldn't detect because, of course, Spain was quite a primitive place back then. You know, people, when I say Spain or Ibiza or both were quite primitive, people suck in and say, oh, you know, how dare you, you know. But it was. There's no getting away from it. It was a primitive place. Uh, that was the charm of it. It was this beautiful, innocent place, even though we were ruled by a dictator. But they put the, be the bodies in the ground very early. And some live people were getting put in to these... Um, into the buried in the walls and they were finding that they were screaming to get out if they when they when they got them out a few years later to rebury them they were trying to get out so there was a cemetery in and i read this in the newspaper oh cemetery in madrid where they were fitting bells inside the coffins to press if the case they were in a coma or their life signs were so low they couldn't be detected with a normal, with normal, um, just a stethoscope, or and they were burying them alive. Ah. Jesus, Simon, I this know. is really gruesome. Know, this podcast, we've just literally scrambled through the bushes for yeah, a good few minutes from the altar, and we're now kind of at the tip of the piece of the headland, just behind it, where the actual plane went down and I didn't expect to see a view um, quite like this one Simon which is uh, really quite spectacular of Esvedra and views sort of down over Caladort. Yes absolutely Caladort just down down there and uh, looking across over to there is the island of Conillera the Rabbit Island. This is the one that you see from San Antonio if you ever go to the Sunset Strip. This is the where the, the, the sun disappears behind that island for many parts of the year as the sun traverses. Um, and the uh, one of the things that they said was that the plane flew right over 
Conigliera. So the direction would have been more or less here. So looking off to the left, here we are on the ridge of the uh, Cesarox Alps. Looking over to the left, we can see the beautiful uh, rock of um, Esvedra. Looking across to the right, we can see Cala Dort, carrying on moving around to the right even further. We can see the islands of Cesbledas and uh, the one that was actually mentioned in, uh, in the reports of the island of Conejera, Conigliera, in uh, the local uh, language of Ibisenc, or Catalan. Uh, that's where the plane more or less flew over uh, on its way uh, to the airport. Now, the, I'm looking directly out towards Conigliera right now, the island, and I know that behind me is where the airport is. So this was the, the flight path, more or less, maybe about just there, striking beneath us, 90 metres beneath where we're standing right now, which is a pretty sheer cliff, and then half of the plane ended up this side, and the rest of it was ramped over the top and down behind us to where the, uh, to where the, the monument is now. Simon, it, it kind of feels like if it was 90 metres beneath where we're standing now, that's where the plane struck. That just seems like a very, very negligent thing to have happened. Like, how could you, how could you misjudge it like that? It seems almost inconceivable. Well, the thing that always keeps coming back to my mind is distraction. And that they weren't, um, they didn't have their minds on the job. They were bringing the plane into land. It was a busy time, uh, but this, this pilot had done this trip so many times. Mm. He had been to the island on this trip hundreds of times, it's, it was said. Um, as you said earlier on, he had a, um, he's a veteran of 7,000 hours flight time. So, and of course we know that when you get so used to something, you get blasé, perhaps. A little, oh, I've done this so many times, I know this route so well. And so it's not like approaching an airport for the first or second time that's new to you because you know what you're doing and you feel as if you can put your resources, your mental resources elsewhere. In my mind, um, I, I, I have to come to the same conclusion uh, every time is, is the pilot was, was being distracted or was distracting himself in this conversation which is which we know and that's on the record that they were talking about football and and of course the the the, the famous last words of uh, get me a beer on because I'm about to land I mean it's very easy to to sort of stand here and talk about the tragedy of all of this and of course it is tragic but on the upside what a beautiful 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 spot and a very different angle that I've ever seen Esvedra from actually to have um to viewed it from this particular side and um yeah i think on the only positive note that i can say is like what a what an ending and what a beautiful beautiful place to to land so just lastly simon like how different you know i mean we've all seen the airport here in ibiza um back here in the sort of the 2000s and how modern it is with the you know the wonderful VIP lounge of Fuck Me, I'm Famous for David Guetta. But, like, what was it really like back in the 70s? I mean, it must have been a very different affair there. Yes, well, it was, it was, it was smaller. Um, it was a, a military airport before it was handed over to uh, the commercial uh, side of uh, aviation. And um, it, was, um, it was very basic. The, uh, the departure lounge, if you like, was, um, was just a house and a bar with a garden and terraces which I believe still is actually there if you look carefully. I have seen it, I've sort of seen this little house that's just uh, tucked away and oh, that's where it used to be. 
and um, you'd, you'd arrive and uh, you, you'd have to carry your own bags to the plane. That was uh, very, very quaint. Um, you, you carried it up to the plane and left it by the luggage hold when the, uh, where the, uh, the, uh, the, the luggage handlers would then load it onto the plane and you went up the steps. Um, and you could have a coffee in the bar or a brandy before you got on the plane, and that was all all very very quaint. But one of the one of the weird things was a lady who worked here in the 60s and into the 70s as a travel rep. She was telling me once about the times when a few planes would come in at once, and the air traffic controller would get very panicky, and he would just turn off his radio set. This is the story she told me. And um, because she heard the stories from the pilots themselves. And so um, the big, big hall, the, 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 the big important airlines like British Airways, people like that, um, Lufthansa perhaps, whoever had the most fuel would uh, speak to the other airline, the other aircraft that were coming in. And she said up to six planes that were coming in and they were just circling around Ibiza, not knowing what to do because they can't get the air traffic controller, don't know where they can come into land. And so they'd realize what's happened again um, because a whole load of planes were circling above Ibiza. And so one of them with the most fuel, well, they would start talking amongst each other and saying, who's got the most fuel? And of course, the cheaper airlines, they did everything on a budget, but the bigger airlines, they had more fuel. So they would say, right, okay, I'm going to go and stack at 8,000 feet. Um, such and such airline, can you go and stack 2,000 feet below me? And so on. And so the, the one with the most fuel would act as air traffic controller to see all the planes in and from that vantage point up in, up in the sky circling um, they could see the planes landing and clearing the runway and send the next one in that had the, had the, had the, uh, the, 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 the least fuel uh, and this is how it, it I mean this is from the lady who told me in those days this is how, how it sometimes happened here it was very very uh, well I, I suppose it be a little bit worrying for you if you were just wondering why you weren't coming into land and as the plane was circling overhead you could see all these other planes stacked beneath you maybe and coming in and landing and who knows who knows I was never involved with that I have to say but uh, an interesting little story that she told me all those years ago Rebel. Coming to you every day.